Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 29. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who were descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known, to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, 
unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now I want you to imagine uh, that you've abandoned your green credibility and decided to fly to your holiday destination. You relax back into your seat, you close your eyes and you let the worries and strains of your working life drain away. And then your worst nightmare occurs. What would it be? Turbulence leading to engine failure? Fire breaks out on the wing outside your window? A terrorist stands up waving a bomb? They run out of champagne? I don't know what your worst flying nightmare is, but imagine it happening, as perhaps all of us who have flown have so imagined. What would you want to hear at such a moment? Obviously, one thing might be the Today program or Chris Evans, if it's Radio 2, because then you'd know you were only dreaming. But if it was real, what I suggest, if this happened in reality, what you would want to hear is the voice of the pilot saying, stay calm, I'm still in charge of the aircraft, we will be landing shortly. You are all safe. You would want to know that the person in command of the plane is still in control. And the overall message of Romans 9 is really that. Despite how things may look right now, at this moment, God is still in control. Now, I have to say that I tried this illustration of the plane out on Will. Being a military man, I thought he might have something to offer on it. But he was unconvinced by my illustration. He said, if a terrorist is leaping about with a bomb, it is quite clear that the pilot is not in control. <laughs> he cannot land the plane. And of course, he was right to point out the limitations of my illustration, but it made me think even more about how clever I possibly was being. <laughs> you see, Paul makes the point climactically at the end of Romans 8 that not even death can separate us from the love of God. That is the ultimate application of the gospel that he has taken eight chapters carefully unpacking. And I tried to make that same point if you came to the carol services before Christmas. If what we say about Jesus at Christmas and what Paul has said about him in Romans 1 to 8 is true, then God is sovereign and the pilot is still in control. Nothing can separate us from God. And, as it says in Romans 8, 28, all things do indeed work together for, for good for those who love Him. That means that even if the worst imaginable thing happens, dr death draws near to us or to those that we love, we as Christians are still conquerors in Christ. God is still in control. Now, often we stop reading Romans at the end of chapter 8. We think, can there be anything more to say after such an amazing climax to Paul's teaching? Perhaps we feel a bit like the West, Country, uh, the West Countryman who was asked uh, what he thought of the new vicar who had come to the parish. 
And he said, oh, he's like him. Because when he do say in conclusion, he do conclude. But the last one, when he said lastly, he did last. <laughs> well, you see, I come from Dorset. It was quite good, wasn't it? And uh, anyway, Paul has well and truly not concluded at the end of chapter 8. And indeed, the subject of chapters 9, 9 to 11 and then on to the rest of the epistle is... Uh, the subject in 9 to 11 is the destiny of the Jewish people, is not only a passionate concern for Paul, but it exactly follows on from the two great assertions of chapter 8. Everything works for the good of the people God chose as his own. That's the claim of chapter 8. And nothing can separate his people from the love of God. That's what it's affirmed in chapter 8. But Paul has a problem. He is a Jew. He loves his people. But it would seem at least possible that God has, in fact, abandoned them in favor of the Gentiles to whom Paul is a missionary and to whom he is writing in Rome, or largely to Gentile Christians in Rome. And what is more, it seemed in Paul's experience uh, to be the case that the Gentiles, non-Jews, were much more receptive to the gospel than the Jews who gave him a hard time wherever he went. It was particularly uh, when he preached in the synagogues that he got persecuted. If God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament cannot be trusted, how can we trust his promises to us Gentiles? That's the question, and it's a very good question. Just quickly note the connection between chapters 8 and 9 more clearly. Paul says that he is prepared, he himself, notice at the start of chapter 9, he himself is prepared to be separated, to be cursed, to be cut off from Christ, the exact opposite of what he has concluded in chapter 8. He himself is prepared to suffer that for the sake of his fellow Jews. It is very deliberate and very dramatic language. And then he lists as the things that the Jewish people, the people of Israel, have a right to, verse 4, the very things that he has listed in chapter 8 as being the benefits accrued by the person adopted into God's family through faith in Jesus. They're the same things. But has God therefore changed his mind? Has God adjusted the plan? Has God had second thoughts? Does this pilot really know how to fly a plane at all? Now, just look at verse 6, which is a key verse. It is not, writes Paul, as though God's word had failed. It is not as though God's word had failed. As one commentator translated, it is not as though God's word has drifted off course. The Old Testament for Paul is not to be seen as the plan of God that failed. Now, these three chapters that I'm going to be looking at over the next uh, three or four weeks uh, do open up a Pandora's box of problems, as you can tell just by my introduction. For instance, as we're going to look at in a moment, the connection between predestination and free will, for instance. That's one problem that it's going to deal with. And secondly, of course, as I've hinted already, the significance of the state of Israel, perhaps the uh, key issue 
in terms of world peace that we're facing at the moment. And as we continue in this, we will see that respectable Christian leaders and thinkers take diametrically opposed views on the significance of the restoration of the state of Israel in 1948. And in chapter 11, we're going to be dealing with that. That'll be in three, uh, in three weeks' time. So I'm not going to go into it in great detail now. It's interesting that the, the time uh, in the seven years that I've been vicar here that I got into most trouble in this pulpit is when I returned from my one and only so far visit to Israel two years ago. Thus, having been there for a week, I had become a world expert. And uh, I was so appalled by the injustices that I saw being committed by the state of Israel against the Palestinian people that I sounded, as I preached, like an unbalanced successionist. That is to say, those who believe in what's called the replacement theory, that the church has replaced Israel as the receiver of God's promises. I sounded uh, that week like an unbalanced successionist. And those with uh, sympathies for the state of Israel and who had some uh, belief that the restoration of the state of Israel was to some extent at least fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, uh, they took offense. Well, of course, I'm two years much older and wiser than now, and so like drivers on a snowy morning, I will proceed with caution. Now, the baggage with which Paul approached the question of the destiny of the Jews is not the same as ours. I've no time to go into this in detail, but consider the impact upon his life of the fact that, A, he persecuted Jewish Christians mercifully uh, before his own conversion on the Damascus Road. So he lived with the guilt of that persecution. The first Christians were, of course, all Jewish from Jerusalem, or almost all Jewish, and uh, it was them that he persecuted with great zeal. He even, of course, stood at the martyrdom of Stephen and gave it his blessing. That must have been a tremendous burden that Paul carried throughout his life. But then he himself was mercilessly opposed and persecuted by the Jews of the diaspora, the dispersed Jews around the Mediterranean, on his missionary journeys. It was particularly the Jewish people who took offense to this Jew who had become a follower of Jesus, preaching to them about the Messiah. So he's guilt-ridden for his persecution of them, angered by their rejection of the gospel, and yet clearly, as we see here, deeply caring for them, as one would care for one's own family. Nine, one to five makes that very clear, how much he cares for the people of Israel and believes that God cares for them too. That is the baggage that Paul approached this question with. We, on the other hand, have different baggage. We have witnessed 2,000 years of persecution of Jews at the hands of so-called Christians. So we must approach this issue with a high degree of collective guilt for what has been done to Jewish people in the name of Christ. The Holocaust was only the 20th century manifestation of a two millennia persecution of the race who allegedly killed Jesus. Though, of course, they didn't really kill Jesus. The Romans did, or actually, no, all we sinners actually did. Anyway, it was an accusation against the Jews that, led to, that has led to appalling suffering down the years for Jewish people. 
and from the early fathers to uh, Martin Luther and, of course, uh, Hitler in the 20th century and others. Terrible things have been written about the Jewish people, and terrible things have been done to them. But, of course, alongside that persecution, there has been a strong tradition that only when God's promises to the Jews are fulfilled, only then will history be wound up. The gospel must be taken to all the world. That's the great missionary imperative. The Gentiles will believe and come in, and the riches of the Gentiles, the spiritual riches of the Gentiles, will rebound to the benefit of the Jews, and God's promises will be fulfilled. As in the words of Romans 11, 25, 26, all Israel will be saved. Words that we're going to look at in three weeks' time. And if you want to read a really good summary of the kind of significance of um, uh, these things, how Bible teaching relates to the end times, and in particular, uh, how the promises of God relating to the people of Israel relate to the end times, which, as I say, we, I will be dealing with in, a, in three weeks' time. But Simon Ponsonby has written a brilliant little book, or well, not a, a brilliant book, it's not a particularly little book, a brilliant book called And the Lamb Wins, which really explains very clearly the different theories and the different ideas about it. And I strongly recommend that book to you. It'll really help you. And the Lamb Wins by Simon Ponsonby. But back now to chapter 9 for tonight. And let me take you quickly through Paul's argument, which is very important for us, not least as we reel from the extraordinary pictures that are reaching us from Haiti, which make us wonder what is happening in the world. And as I see it, chapter 9 basically argues that God knows what he is doing and that he has always known what he is doing. Chapter 10 argues that we have certain responsibilities in the light of that, namely to live by faith and proclaim the gospel. And chapter 11 tells us that God has not yet finished with his special people, the Jews. Now hold in your mind the great Bible plan that we mention often in this pulpit. Human history is about God's people being in God's place under God's rule. Right from the start, the promise to Abraham, and perhaps even before that, the promise in prehistory to Adam and Eve that their offspring would crush the serpent's head. God planned to bring to himself people of every race, not just Jews. God's purposes have not run aground. He is working to a grand plan in history. His word is being and will be fulfilled. So Israel's failure to respond to the gospel must therefore be according to the plan. Now Paul makes that very clear here by reviewing Israel's history. Not all Abraham's and Isaac's children were included. So we see, for instance, that Jacob was chosen and his twin brother Esau not chosen. Always God's blessing was on the children, not of the flesh, but the children of the promise. Whoever God wishes to bless, God blesses. God is in charge. It's a question of who he chose. Now, this business of election is very tricky for us. Is it fair? 
does God have favorites? So tricky is it that some have simply removed it from their thinking, taken it out completely of Christian thinking. But not Paul. He faces it absolutely head on here in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Now, God's justice for Paul is plain, he says. God hates sin and judges it. It provokes his wrath, to use a Roman's term, a term that he's often used throughout the previous eight chapters, but God is merciful, and his mercy transcends his justice. So we've seen in Romans 1 to 8 that God's wrath, therefore, is poured out upon the Lord Jesus on the cross, the perfect sinless Son of God, takes the absolutely right wrath of God against sin upon himself. God's wrath is on sinless Jesus. If you like, God takes the wrath upon himself. His mercy and grace are extended to human beings, to mankind. He wishes to rescue and he chooses to rescue. Perhaps Jesus' parable of the workers in the vineyard um, makes uh, the point quite well. You remember the story. Uh, those working all day, those who came to the uh, employer in the marketplace at the start of the day, uh, got a wage, agreed a wage, worked all day and got their wage. A just wage. But the employer chose to pay the same to those coming late in the day as he had paid to those who had worked all day in the sun. Those who came late in the day did not deserve as much money as those who had worked all day, but the employer chose to pay them that in his generosity. They didn't deserve it, but he was generous. Now, you will not get your head around predestination and free will until you recognize two things. The seriousness of sin and its effect on our wills, all human beings' wills. Unless we get our heads around that, the seriousness of sin, we won't understand predestination and free will. And secondly, we need to understand that God is free to exercise His mercy as He chooses, just as the employer could pay His, his servants what He chose to pay them. Look at verse 19 uh, just for a moment and see what it says there. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? It is not for us to tell God what he can and cannot do. The potter determines the shape of the pot, not the clay. The passenger does not tell the pilot how to fly the plane. Now, Paul recognized, and uh, if he was sitting where you're sitting now, he would uh, recognize immediately that this doctrine throws up all sorts of problems for us. Did God raise up Pharaoh to do terrible things to the people of Israel before their exodus? We might ask, did God elect Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot to do terrible things? Is God using mankind like a plaything? 
Is life some ghastly horror movie with God directing the cast on a whim? And at one level, at one level we have to say, yes, there's some truth in that, in the sense that we know that it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Paul says here, he hardens the hearts of who he chooses to harden. We cannot escape that. We know why God, uh, why God hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that Israel's rescue would be the amazing and unforgettable event that it turned out to be, and the great precursor of the great rescue that Jesus has won for us at Calvary. That's why the Passover has become the Holy Communion service. So we know why God did that. But is life just, is God just playing with us? And the answer to that question surely must be no. God is not playing with us. Look at verse 20 again, just for a moment. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? You see, the very fact that we can interrogate God establishes our free will. The fact is that the clay does question the potter. <laughs> We've heard that very clearly from Steve this evening. Shall I be an atheist or an agnostic? Well, shall I choose to believe in God or not? I'd like to be a square pot this week, God. You see how we do it? You see how free will is tainted by sin and selfishness and rebellion? Humans argue with their creator. However difficult it is for our finite minds to grasp, it remains true that God's sovereign will and our free will coexist together. They both exist. Don't forget um, what Paul's written earlier in Romans, in chapter 3, for instance, that all are alike under sin, Jew and Gentile. He's emphasized that so clearly. All have fallen short of God's glory. All have rebelled. All are under sin, Jew and Gentile. Every Israelite, every Gentile. All have chosen to rebel. All have exercised their free will to turn against God and corrupt themselves. Pharaoh, Hitler, Pol Pot chose evil. In his sovereign mercy, God has opened the door for us to come back. Also by what actually feels like the exercise of our free will. It's interesting listening to people's testimony, how it feels like we're choosing to follow Jesus. And it, it is like that. We are deciding whether to believe in Jesus or not. We're deciding every day whether to do good or bad. We exercise our free will all the time. And yet time and again when we look back on our Christian lives, particularly the process of becoming a Christian, and Tammy's testimony uh, kind of indicated that, that it is God choosing us. Actually, it's God's choice all the time. It feels like us choosing, but God is choosing. Many of your testimonies, I know, would say, say the same thing. But we do have to decide day by day whether to follow Christ or not. To put it crudely, perhaps he has chosen, he has chosen, but we still have to choose. The two things coexist, they simply do. You have to choose whether to leave church tonight or sleep here, you have to choose. God may know which you're gonna do, hopefully go home, but, it, but you still have to choose. 
One commentator helpfully put it like this, it is a mistake to think of predestination as though God is arbitrarily dividing a neutral group into those He will save and those He will condemn. We are all evil, and His righteous response to this evil is to judge and remove it. But He delays His response so that from the mass of corruption He might redeem for Himself a faithful people. Let me say that once again. I think it's really helpful. It is a mistake to think of predestination as though God is arbitrarily dividing a neutral group into those He will save and those He will condemn. We are all evil, and His righteous response to this evil is to judge and remove it. But He delays His response so that from the mass of corruption He might redeem for Himself a faithful people. So here we are. Uh, peering, as it were, into the very meaning of history and our existence. The history of the Jewish people is about God working through them for the rescue of the world. Their history of rebellion and disobedience leading to judgment and mercy and restoration, could 1948 be yet another restoration, I wonder? It mirrors the behavior of all mankind, what the people of Israel did in receiving the promise and rebelling against it, disobeying God, breaking the covenant, is the story of us all. The fact is, though, that God has preserved the world thus far from final judgment and destruction, which it deserves, because He wishes to show His compassion and kindness, which is revealed wholly in Jesus as He dies on the cross in our place. He lavishes upon His undeserving people His fatherly generosity. And lest you wonder uh, that this is true, that somehow the world is worthy of destruction, we've had this extraordinarily powerful reminder this week of how we hang on the edge of destruction, but God has restrained. Do you remember in Romans 8 it said the whole creation is groaning as, in, as if in childbirth? In Haiti, the creation groaned. A great cry of pain has gone out. It's not because the people of Haiti are more sinful than you and me. That is the destruction that will come upon our world. This world will be destroyed, and God will save His remnant. God will save His people, and He spares creation so that there is more time for more to come in. God is merciful, but sin is very very serious. So we do well to receive God's generosity, His fatherly generosity, humbly and obediently. We shall see next week that uh, as we receive God's grace, as we recognize His mercy and His extraordinary generosity in sparing us and the world for the, for the fun of life, He's given us life, we have an opportunity He's given it to us. He has called us to be what He calls objects of mercy or vessels of His mercy. In verse 23, we have, as we shall see next week, the awesome privilege of being co-workers with Christ in this little interim of time before the end of this creation and the coming of the new world. This little story has been circulating on the web and I'm going to close by telling, you, telling it. Some of you will have seen it, but I think it makes 
the point that chapter 9 is trying to make. The surgeon sat beside the little boy's bed. The boy's parents sat across from him. Tomorrow morning, the surgeon began, I'll open up your heart. You'll find Jesus there, the boy interrupted. The surgeon looked up, annoyed. I'll cut your heart open, he continued, to see how much damage has been done. But when you open up my heart, you'll find Jesus in there. The surgeon looked to the parents in desperation, who sat quietly. When I see how much damage has been done, I'll sew your heart and chest back up, and I'll plan what to do next. But you'll find Jesus in my heart. The Bible says he lives there. The hymns all say he lives there. You'll find him in my heart. The surgeon had had enough. I'll tell you what I'll find in your heart. I'll find damaged muscle, low blood supply, and weakened, vessel, and weakened vessels. And I'll find out if I can make you well. You'll find Jesus there too. He lives there. The surgeon left. The surgeon sat in his office, recording his notes from the surgery. Damaged aorta, damaged pulmonary vein, widespread muscle degeneration, no hope for transplant, no hope for cure, therapy, painkillers and bed rest, prognosis, here he paused, death within one year. He stopped the recorder, but there was more to be said. Why, God, he asked aloud, why did you do this? You've put him here. You've put him in this pain, and you've cursed him to an early death. Why have you done this? The Lord answered and said, The boy, my lamb, was not meant for your flock for long, for he is part of my flock and will forever be. Here in my flock he will feel no pain and will be comforted as you cannot imagine. His parents will one day join him here, and they will know peace and my flock will continue to grow. The surgeon's tears were hot, but his anger was hotter. You created that boy, and you created that heart. He'll be dead in months. Why? The Lord answered, The boy, my lamb, shall return to my flock, for he has done his duty. I did not put my lamb with your flock to lose him, but to retrieve another lost lamb. The surgeon wept. The surgeon sat beside the boy's bed. The boy's parents sat across from him. The boy awoke and whispered, Did you cut open my heart? Yes, said the surgeon. What did you find? asked the boy. I found Jesus there, said the surgeon. The surgeon found a faith that transformed him and through his transformation, many lives were saved, not only medically, as he treated those who could not otherwise have afforded his treatment, but also spiritually, as people came to Jesus through him.